You may remember the scene. It's a vivid one for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, and you all should be. It's in the, uh, the third movie, The Return of the King. Smeagol has led the two hobbits through a dangerous journey and a perilous climb to destroy the Ring of Power. But as you know, Smeagol's motives are not pure. In fact, he has caused division among good friends. And you might remember the scene. They're way up on the uh, mountain. They're about to cross over into, I think it's into Mordor. And Smeagol has found a way to accuse Sam that he's eaten the bread. And he says something like this, stupid fat hobbitses. He ate the bread. He did it. Right? And so, of course, Frodo suspects Sam and all the while Smeagol's behind it. He has caused distrust and division among close friends as he leads Frodo into the cave of the gigantic spider. Smeagol is intoxicated by his desire for the ring. And because of it, he, everything he does, it drives everything he does. He doesn't care who he has to sacrifice just so he can get the ring again. And so he accomplishes his purpose and he divides friends and into the cave of the awful spider goes Frodo. She, the spider, is a ruthless killing machine. You enter her cave and you're caught in her terrible web, her powerful web, just waiting to get bit. One bite, you've become breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In a wonderful commentary on the book of James, uh, R. Kent Hughes, quoting Walter Wangrian, explains that the female spider is often a widow for very embarrassing reasons. She regularly eats those who come her way. Lonely suitors and visitors alike quickly become corpses so that her dining room has become a morgue. A visiting fly, having become captive, will be granted the illusion of wholeness. But she, the spider, will have drunk his inside so that he has become his own hollow casket. The reason for this macabre procedure is that she has no stomach, and so she's incapable of digesting anything within her. Through tiny punctures, she injects her digestive juices into a fly so that his insides are broken down and turned into a warm soup. This soup she swills, says Wangren, as he makes the point, even as most of us swill souls of one another, having cooked them in various enzymes of guilt, humiliation, subjectives, cruel love, there are a number of fine acidic mixes that we will send people's way. And some among us are so skilled with the hypodermic word that our dear ones continue to sit up and smile quite as though they were still alive, close quote. And in the book of James, as we have studied James chapter 3 and James chapter 4, you could say in many ways, James 4, 11 and 12 is the culmination of an argument. It's a stop sign. It's a warning. It may be the main problem in the early Jewish congregation that James addresses, and it is simply this. It's captured in one word. The word is slander. They have been slandering one another with their mouths, and they've been destroying one another. And so James says in James 4.11, do not speak against one another. If you have the ESV, it says speak evil against, or the New King James, I think, says speak evil of one another. Brethren, he who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Let's define the word. To speak against one another is a word, kata laleo, in Greek. It means to be a traducer, a slanderer, to criminalize or criminate, to traduce. One author says the phrase speak against, katalaleo, is a compound verb that means to speak down on. It appears only here in James 4.11 and also in 1 Peter 2.12 and 1 Peter 3.16. In those two references in 1 Peter, 
Peter is speaking of slander that comes from non-believers towards believers. So slander from the world towards believers. But here in James, James is dealing with believer to believer. It refers to mindless, slander does, thoughtless, careless, critical, derogatory, and often untrue speech directed against others. It includes questioning legitimate authority, Numbers 21.5, slandering someone in secret, Psalm 101.5, and bringing incorrect accusations, 1 Peter 2.12 and 1 Peter 3.16. The command could be literally rendered, do not speak down or speak ill of one another. This morning, Rabbi Zacharias, preaching on KKLA, said, quote, we have an unquenchable desire for the salacious which reveals our hearts and is manifest through our mouths. Somehow in the deepest recesses of our flesh, we just love salacious bad news about others. And we often, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, don't mind repeating a story, a negative story about somebody else, even if we haven't really uh, looked at the facts, even if we don't even know the situation, we don't mind repeating it. Because in some way, by chopping somebody else down, I feel a little bit taller. I can feel a little bit better about myself if I can run down somebody else and make somebody else feel smaller. And this is uh, happening both in the halls of, you know, academia to the, you know, uh, bastions of government to the doors of homes and inside the walls of the church. There is no place that's immune to it because it's a very human thing to do. Very human thing to want to turn on a news story and see somebody else's demise and talk about it with others and say, oh, did you see this? Did you see that? Did you see what happened to so and so? Slander is malicious speech that is untrue, says one writer. Some even argue that the command here forbids any speech, whether it's true or false, which runs down another person. Even if something is true, ask yourself, does it need to be repeated? Even if it's true, even if you could say, yes, I am aware of the facts, I've researched, I, I know this is true, is it necessary to repeat it? And even further, and I'm telling you that the book of James is very challenging, but here we are. But even further, what's my motive in repeating something? What, what is my goal? What do I seek to accomplish by repeating somebody else's issues or problems or weaknesses? I think all of us know very well what our weaknesses are. Many of us struggle with them. We, we look in the mirror and we often decry the fact that we repeat habitually some things that we'd love to shun. And when someone else brings them up and reminds us of our faults, we are just hurt all the deeper. And it's become really a spectator sport in our world and even in the church. Fault finding, by the way, is not a spiritual gift. That was a joke, but... I know we're opening the sermon pretty seriously. Fault finding is not a spiritual gift. It is not necessary. The Bible teaches us that love covers what? A multitude of sins. And look, we all have our issues. Now this passage is not teaching us to take things lightly. It's not saying that we don't have legitimate things to judge. There are other New Testament passages that teach that people are kicked out of the church, that people are exposed for false teaching, and even names are named in the New Testament. The Bible is not forbidding a legitimate judgment. In fact, to follow biblical commands like Jesus said, you'll know people by their fruits, or he warned us about false prophets, you have to use discernment and judgment to obey those warnings or commands. We have to understand what James is saying and what he's not saying. What he's not saying is that there, there, there is a place for legitimate judgment. There is a place for discernment and discretion. So he would applaud that. He would say, yes, that's correct. Even in his own argument, he has made a judgment. Amen? 
Even in what he presents to us, he has made a judgment on this church. To say to a group of people, stop slandering, is to make a judgment that they've been doing that. So we have to understand what James is saying. What he's saying is, don't run each other down. A synonym for the idea of slander is the word backbiting. Some of you have seen that word, backbiting. Isn't that a picturesque thing? It's something that you won't say to somebody's face, but you'll bite them on the back as they walk away. It's weird, isn't it? It's a weird, almost grotesque picture of someone who watches somebody walk away, maybe someone they even claim to love, and then puts their teeth into their back. Not once, but over and over and over again. Slander was denounced as the third tongue because it slew three persons, the speaker, the spoken to, and the spoken of. And that's why James said earlier in James 1.19, let's be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? To anger. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 1. As Paul is talking about the unbelieving world and what they do as their practice, Romans 1, look at verse 29. This is the unbelieving world that rejects God. Romans 1, 29. Paul says, being filled, they are filled, Romans 1, 29, with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, Romans 1, 29, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, Romans 1, 30. Slanderers. If you have a New King James or King James, it says they are backbiters, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. And so this is an ugly list, and this is kind of what is known in the unbelieving world, a spectator sport of jumping on the, the news story of someone's ugly mess that they've created or something's happened or someone did this or did that wrong. And the news stories will run for days and people will debate it and they'll talk about it and they don't mind filleting somebody on the air. If you turn to the book of Galatians, let me read something from Jim Cimbala. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, just a few pages over to the right. Jim Cimbala says, about 20 years ago, writing in Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, I said something impromptu to new members standing in a row across the front of the church. As we received them, the Holy Spirit prompted me to add, and now I charge you that if you ever hear another member speak an unkind word of criticism or slander against anyone, myself, an usher, a choir member, or anyone else, that you stop that person in mid-sentence and say, excuse me, who hurt you? Who ignored you? Who slighted you? Was it Pastor Simbala? Let's go to his office right now. He'll apologize to you and then we'll pray together so God can restore peace to this body. But we won't let you talk critically about people who aren't present to defend themselves. I'm serious about this, I'm quoting. I want you to help resolve this kind of thing immediately. And know this, if you are ever the one doing the loose talking, we will confront you. To this day, says Simbala, every time we receive new members, I say much the same thing. That's because I know what most easily destroys churches. It's not crack cocaine, government oppression, or even lack of funds. Rather, it's gossip and slander that grieves the Holy Spirit. As I come to this message and come before you this morning, I would say to you that we all probably are guilty in one way or another of running somebody down. Maybe we've caught ourselves as we've joined in a discussion about somebody else, or maybe we were leading the discussion, and then we later realized, you know, all I was doing, my motive for repeating that information or saying what I said about that person was my motive was impure, wrong, and it was sin. And nothing less than sin. We already have an enemy who goes about seeking someone to devour. And by, one of, by the way, one of the names of the devil is a slanderer. If you look up the word devil, diabolos in Greek, it literally means a traducer or a slanderer. Now, in the context of the book of James, we have just read that we're supposed to submit to God and 
Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from us. One of the ways that we resist the devil is resisting letting him have our mouth and slandering other people because he, get this people, is the slanderer. So he inspires much of this stuff. He uses many people as a tool toward his end to run others down, to make them feel low, to chop them down, and in the end, in many cases, to ruin people's reputations. In Galatians 5.14, Paul wrote to the Galatian church and said, for the whole law, Galatians 5.14 is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, Galatians 5.15, take care, lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, here's the solution, people of God. Walk by the Spirit, direct context. This is how you keep from biting and devouring one another. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I bet a lot of you know that verse by heart, Galatians 5.16. But did you know that it comes right after a warning that if you bite and devour one another with your mouth, you're going to destroy one another. Solution, walk by the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit control you, and you will not carry out, you will not speak out the desires of your flesh. And many times, sadly, the desire of my flesh is to make somebody else look bad so I can look good. It's slander. In the book of uh, Ephesians, just a little bit more to your right, you got uh, Galatians and Ephesians. Go to chapter 4 for a second. Ephesians 4. One writer called Harsh Criticism, Slander, and Gossip, The Devil's Feast. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, 30 says, earlier he said, don't give the devil an opportunity. That's in uh, Ephesians 4, 27. And then he says in verse 30 of Ephesians 4, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all, Ephesians 4.31, bitterness and wrath, which could be rage, anger, clamor, and slander. Here the Greek word blasphemia, injurious speech, vilifying others, be put away from you along with all malice, which is a general term for evil, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. If you, O Lord, kept a record of the sins of my mouth, O Lord, who could stand? I couldn't stand in your presence. I'm so grateful that the sins of my tongue, my mouth, have been nailed to the cross. I'm so grateful that Jesus Christ died for all the sins and even the slander that went his way. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What were they doing? Oh, you, you said you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. You, who said you would destroy the temple in three days and raise it up again. You, you say you're the son of God. You, you see all the slander as he hung on the cross. I mean, I, I heard somebody the other night said, if, if Peter was one of my close friends and denied that he even knew me three times, and then had gone fishing, would you pursue Peter if he was one of your close friends? Would you be quick to forgive him on a seashore and charge him with the work of the ministry? But see, this is our Lord. He is so gracious and so good. We are not called to be on search, spiritual search and destroy missions. We are not called to knock people off pedestals. Our Kent Hughes, most people are painfully aware of their own faults and would like to overcome them. Sometimes this talking down of other is, others is simply because we don't have much to talk about. So they fuel the fires of our conversation. We fuel the fires of our conversation with the flesh of others, close quote. We're bored. We don't know what to talk about. Hey, how about so-and-so? Hey, I can bring up so-and-so's faults. And this is what was happening in the church. Psalm 101, verse 5, if you note, it says, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Barclay translates this as stop talking harshly about each other. Don't speak disdainfully of one another, says Martin in the word commentary. We are charged to walk in newness of life. 
turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is uh, a book filled with wisdom and challenge. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 6 for a second. Proverbs 6. This is the list of the things that the Lord hates. You've probably seen it before, but let's take a look again. Uh, Proverbs 6.16 says there are six things, Proverbs 6.16, which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. They are literally detestable to him. Proverbs 6.17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, 6.18, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who what? Who spreads strife among brothers. I can't help but think of the scene in the Lord of the Rings. Go to Proverbs 10. Look at verse 18. Proverbs 10, 18 says, He who conceals hatred has lying lips. Proverbs 10, 18. He who spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of, a right, of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. Isaiah 32, 7 says, As for a scoundrel, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. The fool here in Isaiah 32, 7, the scoundrel... He wants to destroy with slander, and that he does. The scriptures chronicle the devastating effects of slander. Let me just read this little paragraph to you, and we'll go back to James. Proverbs 16, 28 and 17, 9 say it destroys friendships, does slander. Proverbs 18, 8 and 26, 22 says slander causes deep wounds, while Proverbs 11, 9 and Isaiah 32, 7 warn that slander can ultimately destroy people. Slander stirs up contention, Proverbs 26.20. Spreads strife, Proverbs 6.19. And those who do it become fools. Would you turn back to the book of James? Noah Webster, in his 1828 edition of the dictionary, defines slander as a false tale or report maliciously uttered, intending to injure the reputation of another by lessening him in the esteem of his fellow citizens by exposing him to impeachment and punishment, or by impairing his means of living. This is from a uh, commentary by John MacArthur. He says, The havoc a slanderous tongue can cause is graphically illustrated by the following story. They were a happy little family living in a small town in North Dakota, even though the young mother had not been entirely well since the birth of her second baby. Each evening, the neighbors were aware of the warmth in their hearts when they would see the husband and father being met at the gate by his wife and two small children. There was laughter in the evening, too. And when the weather was nice, father and children would romp together on the back lawn while mother looked on with happy smiles. Then one day, a village gossip started a story saying that the father was being unfaithful to his wife, a story entirely without foundation. But it eventually came to the ears of the young wife, and it was more than she could bear. Reason left its throne, and that night, when her husband came home, there was no one to meet him at the gate. No laughter in the house, no fragrant aroma coming from the kitchen, only coldness and something that chilled his heart with fear. Down in the basement, he found the three of them hanging from a beam. Sick and in despair, the young mother had taken the lives of her two children and then her own. In the days that followed, the truth of what happened came out. A gossip's tongue, an untrue story, and a terrible tragedy. This is why the Bible says that there's life and death in the power of the tongue. This is why we know that the words that we speak so easily and flippantly can have devastating results. Jesus said we're supposed to love each other with a royal law. Uh, James calls it the royal law. Jesus said it's the great commandment. Here's the question. I'm going to ask it of myself and by extension ask it of you. Do I spend more time running down others or lifting them up? I just want you to think on that for a second. Do I spend more time running other people down 
or lifting them up. Now, all of you have heard the idea of edification. We're supposed to edify others. That's to build them up. Have you noticed that edifiers are rare while running downers are pretty common? When you find an edifying person, a person who's regularly building others up and not willing to participate in running others down, it seems to be rare. Because as I mentioned, there's something in us that seems to glob on to that kind of stuff. Jesus put it this way, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, listen, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That's Mark 7, 21 and 23. Jesus put his finger on the problem as he always does. The problem is my heart. My heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Sometimes I think... Even after something like this happens or maybe we've joined in on something, we can look at our heart and say, Oh, Lord, help me with this. Help me to be better. Help me to lead others by example. Check out James 4.11 again. It says, Brothers, NIV, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. The exhortation notice is to brothers. It's to the church. It's an exhortation because we are in Christ to be different, to treat each other differently. All of this, just like so much in the book of James, makes me just say, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And James might pound the pulpit at this point and say, Stop the slander. You have a Savior. Become more like Him. Let his spirit rule your life. Let's become a different kind of community. Too many churches, even this morning, are ravaged by the tongue and the negative effects therein. J. Vernon McGee was preaching this morning on KKLA, and he said, you know, a mirror is interesting because when you look at a mirror, and James has already used that in James chapter 1, he said, when you look at a mirror, all it can do is expo expose your blemishes, Right? It can't, the mirror can't fix my blemishes. All it can do is expose them. It takes the wash basin, as McGee put it, or the sink and the water to get the blemish off. All the mirror can do is show me the problem. The water must cleanse me of the problem. And in the same way, the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and of course, ultimately, the power of the cross is what cleanses us from the problem. And we need all the help we can get. And so James says, don't speak. Don't run each other down, James 4.11. Because if you do, you have become a judge of the law. You are not a doer of the law. You've become a judge of it. There is only, verse 12, James 4, one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? Who judge your neighbor. Turn over to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. We're going to be bouncing around this morning in our Bibles, but it's going to be good. Psalm 50. Take a look at verse 16 of Psalm 50. Many of the Psalms are honest cries to God for help, repentance, uh, cheering our souls. But here's what Psalm 50 says. Verse 16 says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes, to take my covenant in your mouth? Psalm 50, verse 17, For you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him. You associate with adulterers. You, you're, you let your mouth loose in evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit, Psalm 50, verse 20, and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Can you imagine how many unbelievers will appear before God on Judgment Day? And they won't have one thing to say because just 
One week of their mouth alone will condemn them. How about one hour of their mouth? How about one minute? How about one second sometimes? Because Jesus put it this way, every careless word that a person utters, he will give an account for on the day of judgment. Did you hear that? Every careless word. I need a savior. I'm not reading the book of James anymore. I'm going to close the book of James and just say, I need a savior. Okay, James, I'm convinced. But I think James, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knows that this is a problem that doesn't end at the church doors. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. I may find you to be not what I wish, that perhaps there may be strife and jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over you, over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented. Chuck Smith tells a story. He said uh, he was in the church office and he got a telephone call from a woman. And she uh, said, you know, my husband and I have been coming to the church for years. And I believe that Chuck knew the man. And my husband has left me and he's, he's with another woman and I want you to go talk to him. And so Chuck agreed and he was driving over to the place that this, now, this man who was married is now shacked up with another woman. And so he arrived and he knocked on the door and the man opened the door and he was disheveled. And this woman that he was cheating with, you know, kind of looked out and she was disheveled. It was a cheap apartment downtown and he sat down on the couch and and the and the man was very sheepish you know to know that pastor chuck was at his house and what he was up to and they sat down on the couch and chuck said he had been praying that he would be able to share the right thing to waken this guy up and he said as he began to try to open his mouth all he could do was cry he said he started going on babbling like a little baby <laughs> and he was crying and he said he, and he would try to say something he just start crying again and finally he said I'm sorry uh, I, I can't bring it together I, I, I gotta go and he said he just walked out of the man's house and he left after crying in front of him for five or ten minutes got in his car and felt like a complete failure said, here I am a pastor and I, I was supposed to share some pearl of wisdom in this man's sinful rebellion to God and all I could do was cry like a little baby. What a failure I am as a pastor. Until he got a telephone call that the next day the man had gone home. Because the Lord had used the broken heart of Chuck Smith and his tears to send all the message that that man needed to hear. See, even the brokenness of his mourning and tears was the Holy Spirit. And if you're like me, sometimes I look at my own heart, I look at the world, I look at how people run each other down, and all I want to do, frankly, is cry. All I want to do is cry. And I wonder in heaven when God looks, and when the Bible says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit who is in us, who sealed us all the way to the day of redemption. Look, we belong to Christ if we're Christians. But this goes on far too much. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2 says, Put them all aside, malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Colossians 3.8 says, Now put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And again, in Colossians 3, the same as in 1 Peter and in Ephesians, if you turn back to the book of James, the solution is putting on the new man, putting on the new man, putting on a new mouth. <laughs> you see, a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit should manifest it Self in a new mouth, but I'm still wrestling between the flesh and the spirit as a Christian. I still have a part of me that's not been fully experiencing the full redemption. I'm redeemed, but someday I'm going to get a new body, and I think it's going to include a new tongue. Amen. I think it's going to include a new mouth. And this challenge will be over, and it's a challenge for us. Look, let's be honest it's a challenge. It's hard, just like all the a negative fruits of the flesh, if they were easy to overcome, nobody would be struggling. 
But James exposes yet another area where it can be something that we don't put on the top of the most terrible sins in Scripture, and yet they are a direct uh, breaking of the royal law. James 4, verse 12. Now you know why we're only doing two verses. It says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? Here's Gordon MacDonald in a sermon, Feeling as God Feels. One time, 20 years or so ago, I was in Japan on a speaking tour with a close personal friend. He was a number of years older than I was. As we walked down the street in Yokohama, Japan, the name of a common friend came up. And as I said something unkind about that person, it was sarcastic, it was cynical, it was a put-down. My older friend stopped, turned, and faced me until his face was right in front of mine. And with deep, slow words, he said, Gordon, a man who says he loves God would not say a thing like that about a friend. He could have put a knife into my ribs, and the pain would not have been any less. But you know something? There have been 10,000 times in the last 20 years that I've been saved from making a jerk of myself. When I've been tempted to say something unkind about a brother or sister, I hear my friend's voice saying, Gordon, a man who says he loves God would not speak in such a way about a friend. It stopped me. That confrontation has stopped me 10,000 times. That's why I need God's word. That's why I need to be confronted with my own sin. Because oftentimes after the mirror of God's word shows me who I am, I can make adjustments. I can wash in the right place. I can say, Lord, I need help over here. Help me in this area. Because there's only one lawgiver and judge. And to use some loose English, you ain't him. And think about it. When we run down brothers and sisters, we are running down those who have been blood-bought by the Savior, adopted into his family, loved with an everlasting love. And if we don't realize that they are a fellow child of God, a brother and sister in Christ Jesus, then we can put ourselves on a pedestal and be saying something about a child of God that he would never say about them himself. And if he did correct them, it would be only his right to do so. And so, in essence, we are putting ourselves in the place of God when we do this kind of thing, when we run others down. And so, James, again, is not saying there's, there's not a need for honest judgment, but he is saying there is no place for this censorious running down of others. Here's a list I put in my notes. Are there certain principles that we can apply to know what to say, when, and when not to say? What not to say? Number one, is it true? Do I know for sure? Number two, is sharing this information necessary? Number three, will it help? Number four, what's my motive for saying this right now? If I search my motive before I open my mouth, oftentimes I'll stop right there. Number five, am I saying this to make this person look bad? 5B, so I can look good? Am I saying this because I have bitterness, jealousy, envy, or I just really don't like this person? Have I followed the biblical mandate of Matthew 18 to go to them in private? If I have an issue with them, instead of me talking about them, have I gone to them and tried to resolve the situation? What's a legitimate use of judging? Well, to be a watchman. Ezekiel 33, 7 through 9, to warn brothers and sisters, to warn people of hell, that's legitimate, to warn people against false teaching, Acts 20, 27 through 31, Paul warns the Ephesian elders, Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. In 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, Paul names Hymenaeus and Philetus as false teachers who are destroying the body. In 2 Timothy 4, 14 and 15, he names Alexander the coppersmith, who did Paul much harm in opposing his teaching. He names Alexander and Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. So there is a proper judgment, but if the motive is to protect and warn, that's one thing, but not to run somebody down 
as simply a sport. So the ultimate form of slander could be to speak negatively or run somebody down or worse yet, condemn them when they're right in the sight of God. I've got two Old Testament passages and we're done. And all God's people said, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Numbers 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Here's Numbers 12. And as you turn there, Psalm 78, 19 says, Then they spoke against God, did Israel. And they said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And many of you know, as you read the Old Testament, you sometimes find yourself shaking your head. You read about Israel and you say, No, they're not going to do it again, are they? They're not going to do it again. (laughs) Yeah, they are. Caravans back to Egypt. He just brought us out here to kill us in the desert. Here's Numbers 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed only spoken only through Moses? Numbers 12, 2. Has he not spoken through us as well? You might want to note this. And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, the Hebrew says, come into my office. You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. He called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses, it's amazing that God had Moses' back. And so the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous, or full of leprosy. And then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. And Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. And so Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, The people did not move on until Miriam was received again. We could take it there that she was healed. And afterward, however, the people moved out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Turn to Numbers 21. Numbers 21. Here's another familiar story. Um, And we'll move towards the solution. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then the children of Israel, they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. Numbers 21, 5. Impatience often leads to stupid words said. Amen. (laughs) And the people spoke against God and Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. I hate manna. Hate it. You can have it. Feed it to the animals, but I'm not having it for one more meal. And so they spoke these words, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. I think God said, you want a backbite? Okay, here you go. We'll do some biting. And so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. And you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. If there were snakes around my camp, I would be praying like I never prayed before. 
I hate snakes. I'm like Indiana Jones. I hate them. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. What in the world does this mean? Well, I told you two more passages, but I got to show you one more. Go over to John 3. I want to leave you with some good news. Here's John chapter 3. So Jesus is dialoguing with Nicodemus. He's telling him, you got to be born again of the Holy Spirit. This is John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, John 3.11, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Here's the image. Israel in the wilderness has been snake-bitten by their own sin and their own tongue. And even though they saw all these mighty miracles and had the privilege of the Redeemer taking them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, they spent much of their time in the wilderness complaining, backbiting, blaming God and blaming Moses. Moses was their deliverer, and he had become now the one that they blamed. And they were making judgments, and they were running down Moses and they were running down God and God said I've had enough and he sent the fiery serpents and they began to bite the people and people died and the solution became a serpent that was raised up in the wilderness and all a person had to do was if they got bit by the serpent's bite was just look to it and they would what they would live and all of us have been bit with the serpent's bite of sin and death. And it, the venom has crept into us. And it's deadly. And we've seen the fruit of it. And 2,000 years ago, God sent his son in the likeness of human flesh to come and live among snake-bit people. And to be raised up on a cross and to die there, though he was innocent, that anyone who would look to him would be saved. And many people won't look and they'll die in their sin because they think, ah, that venom's not going to kill me. I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need him. And the book of James says, you need a Savior. You need Jesus. And God demonstrated his love for me and you in this, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died. For me. He put his love on display at the cross. And I've been bit by the snake and I've done my fair amount of biting others. But my sin debt was paid in full at the cross. Praise the Lord. Oh, what a Savior. Jesus, Redeemer. That precious blood that ran down Calvary's cross cleanses me from every sin I've ever committed. I am so grateful. So encouraged, so glad that he dealt with my sin in full at the cross. God's word will expose the blemishes. God's son washes them all away. Father, as we contemplate some deep, deep waters in the book of James, thank you for the cleansing flow of the blood of Jesus. Thank you that his death on the cross and his resurrection heals me of my sin, justifies me in your sight, 
now as I stand in Christ, it's as if I've never sinned. I have his righteousness to my account by faith. And anyone after reading the book of James who thinks they don't need a savior is just playing the fool. And Father, just as we need a savior, we need your spirit to change us. We don't want to use our weaknesses as, as excuses to continue in sin. And we don't want to use grace as an excuse for sin. Even though we are saved, we're not to continue in sin. That grace may abound. We're to live a new life. And Lord, little by little, I know you're changing us as a redeemed community more into your image. Help us, Lord. We confess that we're weak in these areas. We need your help. We need your forgiveness. We need your changing power. We need your word. We need the power of your spirit. And so I pray that this redeemed community would just experience the beauty of a fresh infilling of your spirit, hope in Jesus, encouragement that we are children of God. But Lord, would you change us more to be like you? Give us your words, your heart in everything we do. In everything we say. Would you keep your head and, head and heart bowed if you don't know Jesus? I don't know what else I can say other than just run to him. And you may say, well, pastor, how do I come to know him? Something like this. Jesus, pray it if it's you. Forgive me. Thank you that you came to die on that cross for all the evil, all the wrongs that I have done all the wrong things I've said with my mouth, all the thoughts that I've thunk in my brain that didn't come out, but still you knew, all the actions that were wrong. Thank you for Jesus. I receive him as my Lord and my Savior. I repent of my sin and I trust in him and him alone for my salvation. Change me from the inside out. Maybe you're a prodigal. Maybe this sermon has hit really close to home and you've got some things you just need to deal with before the Lord. Just ask him to, to show you the way. And Father, just, I just pray you'd pour out a blessing on your people. In Jesus' holy name, I pray. Amen.